You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 23rd of October 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. The UK's Prime Minister Boris Johnson threatens a general election as he waits to see how long or indeed if the European Union will agree to delay Brexit again. My guests Victor Bulma-Thomas and Joy Ledico will discuss that and the day's other news, including the increasingly violent demonstrations in Chile and Bolivia. We'll ask if there is a global thread to discontent and why it has taken to the streets. And we look at Mexico and the impact on media allegedly caused by the president's austerity measures. Plus, for those opposed to Netanyahu, a right-wing hawk who's been in power for 10 years and is currently facing charges of bribery, corruption and breach of trust, the time has finally come when they can wonder, what could a post-Bibi Israel look like? We mull Israel's post-Netanyahu future. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Victor Bulma-Thomas, Associate Fellow with the US and the Americas Programme at Chatham House, and Joy Ledico, the broadcaster and journalist. We will start here in the UK, which means we will be talking about Brexit, at which we will offer our British listeners the by now traditional pause, in which they may retreat to an empty bathtub in the dark and spend the next five or six minutes weeping pea-sized tears of boredom and or rage. Last night, Britain's Parliament declined to die alongside Prime Minister Boris Johnson in the ditch he had dug around October 31st. EU leaders are pondering what degree of extension to extend to Brexit. The length will likely be directly proportional to their sense of humour. Joy, first of all, basically what happened in the House of Commons last night? Um, Well, You can just scream for the next 30 seconds if you like. uh, uh, Two things happened uh, which seem to almost cancel each other out. So uh, on the one side, Boris, uh, Boris Johnson's deal was notionally voted through on principle. Um, a rare win for him in the House of Commons. A rare win for him. Um, it's the second reading, um, bearing in mind it was voted through on principle, but them knowing that they had the chance to amend the hell out of it <laughs> so it no longer looks like Boris's deal on the third reading, um, which isn't now happening. Then there was a, uh, a a question of how quickly should we do this? Boris said, quick, 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 quick. I've got to go and uh, avoid this ditch. And uh, Parliament said, look, hang on a second. Uh, parliamentary sovereignty and all that, wasn't that what it was all about? I'm sorry, we'd like to spend a little bit longer debating it. Not three days. If you look at all the other treaty negotiations we've had, they've been around 30 days or 40 days of parliamentary time, at which point Boris uh, slightly threw his toys out of the pram and said, right, we're not de- debating it at all. The whole thing's on pause. Um, Victor, is can we at least reassure ourselves and indeed our listeners that October 31st is now definitely a non-runner? Is there any way that the UK can leave the EU on that date? I think one of the few good things to come out of Brexit is, A, the black humour that you so brilliantly illustrated earlier on, and secondly, our understanding of the unwritten British constitution. (laughs) Uh, It it, it has been quite the civics lesson, hasn't it? Um, I think, uh, yes, we can probably forget about... uh, No, I think we can certainly forget about October the 31st now. Um, October 31st was never actually going to happen anyway because it still had to be ratified by the EU Parliament. Timing-wise, it was never going to happen. And there's another obscure thing that's come up, which is a a rule that you have to have 21 days for treaty changes um, called CRAG, which which came up again the other day. So Boris Johnson, I think, had not checked his own constitutional uh, 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 consultants on this anyway. And and those of us 
of course, who have paid attention to Boris Johnson's career in journalism will realise how unusual it is for him to have ploughed heedlessly ahead without bothering to check his facts en route. Almost un, almost unheard of. Well, having said that, what you have just witnessed is a journalist's deadline panic. When you set this up <laughs> deadline, you think it's going to happen, you're racing, you're like sleepless nights, and then somebody says, look, actually, don't worry about the piece. After all, it's going to be late. It's going to not run in this edition. Sorry. Um, Victor, what are Boris Johnson's options from, from where he presently sits? Uh, well, they vary from bad to very bad. Um, having said that, it's not great for the opposition either. Um, for Johnson, it's essentially a question of whether to, having presumably received an extension from the EU 27, whether to plough ahead with the bill and risk uh, one of the uh, uh, amendments that are so deadly from his point of view passing. That is a big risk because uh, given the arithmetic of the current parliament, that could certainly happen. Uh, and the second risk, obviously, is uh, somehow managing to uh, uh, get an election in the next uh, uh, eight weeks, which I think is possible. And then finding that fighting an election, not having delivered Brexit, is a very risky strategy because uh, there will be some people who will blame him for it. And obviously, it's a, it's a shot in the arm for the Brexit party, which will see an opportunity to uh, pick up some seeds. I wonder about that, Joy, because Boris Johnson, if he does manage to contrive an election, which is, is far from guaranteed because the opposition has its own very real reasons for not really wanting one, like the fact that they won't win it. Mm. But he can, even if he doesn't get the UK out of the EU by the end of next week, which he's almost certainly not going to do, he can then pitch himself as the, the people versus the parliament election, can't he? This is kind of no lose for him. Um, I mean, possibly it does. Actually, I think it's the reason he does want an election is that he's polling so strongly at the moment. He's a, a memorable face, people associating with kind of good humour, optimism, and so forth. That's the current image, and that's why he wants it to happen as quickly as possible. However, um, the right, the, the thing that the Tories were trying to do when they actually started off the whole referendum was to try and outflank. Uh, the Brexit Party or the then UKIP Party, who were far more Eurosceptic than them, those that Brexit Party still has a very good mailing list. And Nigel Farage, its leader, has been popping up today already saying this is not the Brexit that people voted for. So Johnson is now facing trying exactly the same problem that, um, uh, that Theresa May had, which is the ship lists to the left, then the ship lists, lists, lists to the right. And whichever way you go, the other side, something begins to move and slide. And so uh, um, Farage is currently, and he's been on Twitter this morning, uh, as has various of his henchmen, trying to get that space again, saying we were the only ones who were going to deliver a no-deal Brexit. Boris is compromising left, right and centre. This won't be a no-deal Brexit. And if you watched last year's last night's debate, you will have seen in the crucial few minutes just before the vote he was you know promising his grandmother if people would vote for it and he, he gave away a huge number of concessions in the hope he could just get it through uh, final quick thought on this victor if there is a general election in the next seven or eight weeks which does seem slightly likelier than not how different will it be just in terms of i'm wondering what difference to a british general election the light and the temperature are going to make because this this does this is a genuine thing we had jess phillips mp in here a couple of weeks ago sort of saying that she was not looking forward at all uh, to spending December walking the streets of Birmingham Yardley. Um, it's unusual for a British general election to take place in the cold and the dark. 
yes, it is. Uh, but I think that can be exaggerated because it's not like the late 1940s or something where it really was not a question yet. of... <laughs> <laughs> it was a question of knocking on doors to get out votes. There are many ways now of getting out the vote other than plodding the streets in the dark. So I think were it to happen, I think we would all uh, get on with it and uh, we'd see a reasonable turnout. Joy Ladico and Victor Bulma-Thomas. We will be back with more from you both in just a moment. But first, Monocle's Daniel Bache has some of the other stories we're following today. Thank you, Andrew. Turkey and Russia have agreed a deal that aims to keep Kurdish forces away from Syria's border with Turkey. It means that Syrian and Russian forces will immediately oversee a withdrawal of Kurdish forces from the area. The agreement was announced after lengthy discussions. Hong Kong's government says it is formally withdrawing legislation that would have allowed extraditions to mainland China. The proposed bill has caused months of unrest in the city-state, but it's thought that the decision to halt the legislation will do little to quell public anger. As we've been hearing, the UK's Prime Minister Boris Johnson intends to push for an early general election if the European Union proposes delaying Brexit beyond the end of this month. Johnson paused his Brexit bill yesterday after the UK's parliamentarians refused to sign it off. And Japan's SoftBank has sealed a takeover of WeWork, bailing out the troubled property startup. SoftBank has said it will provide $5 billion in new financing and up to $3 billion for existing shareholders. The deal will see SoftBank increase its stake in WeWork to around 80%. Co-founder Adam Newman will leave the board of the company once valued at around $50 billion. The Wall Street Journal reports Mr. Newman could receive a package of nearly $1.7 billion in payouts. Those are some of the headlines we are following. Now back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Daniel. You're listening to Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Still with me are Joy Ladico and Victor Bulma-Thomas. Let's look now at two portions of South America presently joining a global chorus of street-born discontent. In Chile, there have been days of seriously violent demonstrations which have left at least 15 people dead, originally sparked by a hike in public transport fares, but which have escalated into more generalised protests. In Bolivia, an amount of cafe furniture has been hurled at local police amid wide spread bewilderment at the counting of votes from Sunday's presidential election. Uh, Victor, is it a a reach to perceive this as a global phenomenon looking at Santiago and La Paz along with Hong Kong, Beirut, Barcelona et al? That probably is a bit of a stretch uh, because the cases are so, so different if you look globally. But it is true that within Latin America, public transport Uh, price rises have been extremely uh, provocative. Uh, I mean, the ones taking that have triggered all this uh, uh, rioting and protests in Chile are taking place just after the same events in uh, Ecuador just uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, and perhaps provided some sort of an inspiration. If you go back a few years, uh, not many years, you'll find that it was um, an increase in public transport prices that triggered the unrest that eventually led to the fall of Dilma Rousseff in Brazil. So public transport price rises, of course, it's not just the Americas we've seen in in France, how they can be extremely provocative as well. But certainly it was the trigger, it seems, in in Chile for a frustration that has been building up 
uh, for many years. I, I think it's because they're a thing people don't understand, Joy. It may be because, or people do understand rather. I think maybe Joy because governments spend so much of their time trading in astronomical sums, they forget that those don't actually make any sense to people. I'm reminded of of Britain circa 2008, when in a matter of weeks the government announced we're going to spend umpty billion pounds of your money to bail out a bunch of inept and crooked bankers, and everyone went, "Yeah, okay, fine." Uh, and then the MPs expenses scandal yeah. broke and people went nuts about someone spending 80 quid getting his moat cleaned. Um, you will also remember that it's 2000-2001, we had our own um, fuel strikes where the hauliers just stopped driving on the road saying and and stopped delivering petrol. Um, bread used to be, the change in the bread price used to be cited as the trigger for revolutions and it's actually quite interesting that it is now transport that is doing it uh, and whether it in fact is linked to the petrol price and particularly in an age of environmentalism so, you know, uh, Macron was constantly talking about how we're going to manage the ecological transition this is going to be a, a continual flashpoint for any country that tries to sign up to some sort of change in how people commute commuting prices are fairly ridiculous anyway you're being asked you've got a, 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 a populations now that are increasingly city-based and therefore having to use public transportation and it's become interesting that that's now the trigger it would take some gumption for a government to put up the rail rail tickets and say we're doing it for the environment though wouldn't it um well <laughs> i mean in the uk uh, boris johnson has suggested dropping the the fuel duty duty by two pence which would cost billions uh in order to appease uh, road users whereas in fact and then he's got a country policies saying we're going to start a new climate change environmental panel. It's like, well, which way do you want to go? One way or the other? Um, Victor, we, we have seen, as is often the case, when demonstrations go past a certain point um, at which the government starts getting worried that the government tries to reach out, make some sort of compromise. We've certainly seen it in Lebanon uh, and we've also seen it in Chile of President Sebastian Piñera. Uh, he's cancelled that fare increase. He's also promised to increase pensions, reform health care and so on. Does, does that ever work or do people just get more annoyed because they're now thinking, well, if you could have done that anyway, why didn't you do it years ago? Well, that's the art of politics, isn't it? I mean, knowing when to retreat. Um, it looks as if in Ecuador, for example, the retreat is probably sufficient to stave off uh, anything more serious as far as the government is concerned. I suspect the same will happen in Chile. The, um, the measures belated though they are, will probably be sufficient to uh, stop this escalating into something uh, uh, more dramatic. Um, it's a very different from Hong Kong, for example, where every time the, the government takes one step back, the protesters think they can force them two steps back. Uh, Joy, we should take a look at Bolivia, where there, there have been allegations of shenanigans, uh, largely by the opposition. As it stands, it looks like uh, the president has been re-elected, but he may need a second round uh, to get away with it. Um, the question is, is one, is the... Is the rioting or the anger justified? Does the process appear to be operating as it should be? It, does, it has been a bit weird. There has been a, a sudden influx of votes from somewhere. Um, now, I'm afraid I'm not a Bolivia expert, and so I couldn't <laughs> possibly actually comment on the detail on it. But if I may draw it out to a kind of rather larger point, which is the whole of Latin America feels quite unstable at the moment. Chile, in fact, is a sort of unusual example in that it's more economic it's doing better economically than the rest and kind of is pushing forwards it's got, it's got good gdp growth but i would suggest a lot of the destabilization that's going on at the moment is the fact that 
because of, of who is actually in North America, Donald Trump, and the various kind of rules of engagement that previous US administrations placed on South American countries, and in return giving them trade access, aid, IMF funding and so forth, have just begun to kind of, those, those uh, carrots have begun to wither under Donald Trump, and he himself is so erratic that what goes on in South America ends up being the kind of reflection of that. And Victor, I think, will probably be... A, a, able to correct me if I've got any of that wrong. Well, on that thought, um, is it weird, Victor, that the United States has waded into this one already? For all the reasons that Joy outlines, President Evo Morales of Bolivia is, is very much not Donald Trump's kind of guy, and I think generally not really Washington's kind of guy. But uh, Michael Kozak, who is, and I'm going to take a deep breath before reading out his title, the Acting Assistant Secretary for the State Department's Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs, his business cards must be the size of dinner plates, says the US rejects the Electoral Tribunal attempts to subvert Bolivia's democracy by delaying the vote count and taking actions that undermine the credibility of Bolivia's elections. I mean, they're putting their thumb on the scales there a bit, aren't they? I suspect that that intervention will save uh, Evo Morales, actually. (laughs) Uh, It was uh, extremely unwise, given that the OAS team of election observers has yet to pronounce. Um, I think everything will become clearer once they do. I don't think there's much of a problem in the last tranche of votes coming in favouring Morales because they come from the rural areas and everybody knows that his support is much stronger in the rural areas. Uh, There are some things to explain. There's no doubt about that. But if we end up uh, with uh, a gap between him and his uh, challenger, uh, Carlos Mesa, under 10%, even if it's only just under 10%, that means there is a second round and therefore there's no particular reason to get uh, too excited about it. If it had been just over 10%, as looked to be the case uh, yesterday or a couple of days ago, that would have been a bit more worrying. But I think uh, if it goes to a second round, uh, which Morales will probably win, uh, then um, this is not the moment to um, start talking about um, uh, chaos and revolution in Bolivia. I think perhaps it's just worth stressing that uh, Morales has been an extraordinary politician uh, with an amazing backstory and all the rest of it. He's always won on the first round in Bolivia, and I think uh, that's where perhaps... uh, uh, people are getting a little bit suspicious. In fact, there's no shame in winning on the second round. In fact, no, a win to win. when you've been in power as long as he has, it'd be a, a great distinction. But uh, were that it were it to be demonstrated that there was undue pressure on the uh, electoral tribunal, that will be worrying. But so far, we have no proof. Okay. well, finally, on the news panel, we will stick with South America, or at least South-ish America, specifically Mexico, where it is beginning to look like President André Manuel López Obrador is no more keen on the media than his bellicose counterpart north of the border. As Mexican media see it, AMLO is pursuing a vendetta more subtle than thumbing illiterate abuse into Twitter. Government spending on advertising, a vital revenue stream for many Mexican outlets, has declined dramatically to less than 4% of the budget outlaid by AMLO. Lowe's predecessor, Enrique Pena Nieto. Um, Joy, it does strike me that there is a fundamental question here, which is, does any government owe any media outlet a living? I was uh, astonished by this story because I suddenly thought, what well, what are the parameters within which Mexican journalists work? That they, they expect a government to be subsidising, not directly, but indirectly through advertising, the work that they do. And by kicking up a fuss about it, therefore handing more power 
to the government. Um, the same thought struck me, yes. I'm glad I'm not alone. No, you're not alone <laughs> at all. Um, you know, I, I, I looked up government funding of advertising and there is a hoo-ha going on in Australia at the moment, about £200 million worth of government advertising uh, for their programmes in various media outlets, i.e. why are you spending that much money? This, something's been happening in the UK as well, where uh, not directly, in, well, there has been some in newspapers, also social media, £100 million campaign on the, uh, on the get ready for Brexit. Money uh, well spent. Well, it's you know it's wonderful having all this advertising uh, flowing into various media outlets, but in fact, you do not want the customer to be able to swing what you're doing. So, I think Mexico Mexican journalists have revealed uh, a rather overcomplicated relationship with the government and should perhaps consider. Uh, putting their prices up of their newspapers. Um, Victor, because it, it's far from unheard of, of course, for governments to try and balk things slightly by directing advertising spending to outlets which they perceive as favourable, but Mexican journalists complaining about this appear to think it's equivalent to not spend money on journalism that you might think might be unfavourable. It doesn't seem like quite the same thing, does it? No, indeed. Um, and um, I think it's worth emphasizing that uh, AMLO came to power uh, with many promises, but one of which is that he would be fiscally conservative. And that means cutting government expenditure. And he's been true to his word. He has run the fiscal accounts of the country in a very responsible way, whatever you think of his um, other policies or programs. Uh, so for now, for people to complain that somehow or other this is a way of manipulating the media in his favor is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, he's cut this, uh, frankly, irresponsible uh, spend with the mainstream media. And we should all be very grateful because were it to be continued, then obviously there is much less opportunity for patronage either by this or future governments when it comes to... Um, trying to influence the uh, the way in which the government is viewed. Joy Ledico and Victor Bulma-Thomas, thank you both. In a moment, a peer into Israel's future in the latest opinion from Monocle's editorial floor. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. And finally today, Monocle's business editor, Venetia Rainey, considers what might lie ahead for Israel, if indeed Benjamin Netanyahu has reached the end of his time in the nation's top job. For the second time this year, longtime Israeli leader Benjamin Netanyahu has been unable to form a coalition government. Whether his rival, Benny Gantz, will be able to secure a majority instead is uncertain. His blue and white alliance beat Netanyahu's Likud by just one seat in September, and Parliament is heavily divided. Yet for those opposed to Netanyahu, a right-wing hawk who has been in power for 10 years and is currently facing charges of bribery and corruption, the time has finally come when they can wonder, what could a post-BB Israel look like? It's unclear whether anyone else likely to become Israel's next leader, Gantz or otherwise, would change the basics of the moribund peace process with Palestine. In terms of domestic policies, his goals remain largely unknown. 
but there is definite potential for improved international diplomatic relations. Ties with former allies such as the EU and the US Democratic Party have been severely damaged by Netanyahu's aggressive stance on settlements and his support for Republican President Donald Trump and Russia's Vladimir Putin. Gantz, a career soldier and formerly head of the army, is known for being calmer and more measured than his firebrand counterpart. Although, given his significant military record, he may not be any better suited to making more friends in the region. For now, however, he remains a wild card, and that's assuming he can get into power at all. With a third election in the space of a year on the cards, all eyes will be on Israel to see whether change might finally be blowing in, and if so, from what direction. was Monocle's business editor, Venetia Rainey, and that is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache. Our studio managers were David Stevens and Steph Chungu. Coming up at 2000, Daniel is back with a brand new edition of The Entrepreneurs. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London, 1300 Toronto. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.